Dr. Brian Fields, welcome to the Nature of Nantucket podcast. It's such a pleasure to host you this afternoon and also to welcome you as a speaker for our Science Speaker Series, which will be held next Wednesday, July 26th at 7 p.m. Welcome, Dr. Fields. Oh, well, thanks. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and looking forward to it. Will you share with us a little bit about your talk, your upcoming talk next week? Yeah, so uh, uh, so I uh, um, I'm going to be talking about uh, what happens when stars attack, uh, and uh, I'm not speaking of uh, ill-behaved Hollywood celebrities. I mean actual astronomical objects exploding dangerously close to the Earth. Um, and uh, the good news is that happens very very rarely, so there are no such threats in the sky today. But over the history of the Earth. Uh, such things uh, have indeed happened, and I'll explain how we know that, and uh, and what some of the uh, what some of the unpleasant things uh, that could happen if uh, if a star blew up too close to us. What led you on this fantastic journey of answering the question: What happens when stars explode too close to planet Earth or to our galaxy? So. Uh, um, so well, I'm uh, I'm I'm very interested in uh, um, uh, in uh, in stars in the universe, and um, uh, that's my that's my line of work. I do uh, I'm in the astronomy and physics departments, so that's the kind of stuff that's interesting to me. Um, and um, and I particularly uh, uh, um, am fascinated by the fact that uh, that together with the Big Bang, stars make or where all of the elements were made of, where they come from, where the chemical elements from hydrogen all the way up to lead, where they come from. And they come from the Big Bang, the very lightest elements, and then stars. Um, and uh, uh, and that is a, that's a story I never get tired of, and we're always learning more about that. Um, so we are literally made of the ashes of uh, of long dead stars, um, and and what happens is when stars die, they they blow up and and sp they make new elements during their lives, and then they blow up at the end of their lives if they're massive stars and and distribute them to the rest of the cosmos, and uh, and we realized if that happens near enough to us, then the guts of the star would literally rain upon the earth, rain upon our heads. And that got us into how we might, thinking about how we might actually detect such a thing. Interesting. So how do we actually detect this activity? Yeah, very good. That's the, that's the key question. That's exactly the right question. So, uh, so like I said, stars are element factories, including the sun. The sun is currently busily undergoing nuclear fusion. All stars run by nuclear fusion, which means it's taking light elements and making them into heavy elements. In particular, the sun is burning uh, uh, hydrogen that it's mostly made of into helium. So it takes the very lightest element and makes the next heaviest one. Um, and the sun in the center of the sun already has more helium than hydrogen. And it's about halfway through its life. So, you know, circle your calendar we have another about five billion years to go and then the sun will run out of fuel um uh but all stars do this um and uh, if they're very massive stars they end in a bang and a huge explosion and all of their new elements that they make and they don't just make hydrogen and helium they make all the way up the periodic table 
um, or at least most of the periodic table, and then spew their guts out into space. And then the idea is if it's close enough to the Earth, a, a small amount of this literally rains upon our heads. Um, and what we realize is um, that the um, most of what comes from the star, of course, is already on the Earth. The star makes a lot of oxygen, a lot of iron. Well, the Earth already has a lot of oxygen and iron. We breathe it. It's in our blood. Um, so, uh, so just finding that doesn't tell you it came from a nearby star. But in the blizzard of nuclear reactions in these stars, they also make uh, radioactive elements, so unstable isotopes, unstable nuclei that are uh, uh, that only live for a while and then they decay. Um, uh, and so we realize that, aha, if the star is exploded uh, nearby and recently, the radioactive elements won't have decayed yet. Um, and so we can find crazy radioactive species that have no business being on the Earth, and uh, and that way uh, the, you can uh, infer that something had to put it here. So the analogy here is uh, uh, if radioactivity is too complicated, uh, think about green bananas, because bananas like uh, radioactive nuclei decay over time. So they start out green and then uh, uh, become yellow and then not so nice. Then they get all mushy and brown. Um, so in the same way, nuclei that are radioactive start out as one kind of element and then decay into another kind of element. Um, and green bananas uh, are like these not yet decayed radioactive species. And the idea is if you find a green banana here in Illinois where I am or mm -hmm. on Nantucket, uh, you know two things. It's green, so it had to have been made recently, and you also know it wasn't made here, which means that something had to bring it here. So when we find this radioactivity on the bottom of the ocean, that's the green bananas. It wasn't made in the ocean, and something had to bring it here, and that was the explosion of a nearby star. Amazing. That is quite impressive. And I can't wait to learn more from you next Wednesday during your presentation. Tell me about what are you currently working on? in your field of astrophysics. Yeah, and so I'm I'm absolutely continuing to work on this problem. So there are new measurements all the time, and we're excited about them. And then there's so much, in fact, there's more than I have time to talk about um, in my talk. But uh, I've got a group of students, and uh, and we're busily working on this problem and trying to understand the new data and see if we can't predict uh, results for measurements that haven't been made yet. So that's one of the so that continues to be one of the main things I work on, and it's a lot of fun because it's a new subject. This isn't thing something that's been around a long time, broadly speaking. So it's been around. You know, I first I first started to work on this twenty five years ago, but in the scheme of astrophysics, it's still not very long. Um, so it's still a relatively uh, a relatively new subject, particularly because the really interesting data just came pretty recently. Um, and so it's an exciting time to work on it. But uh, but I have a short attention span, so I work on some other things. Um, and one of the uh, one of the other main things I like to think about is the Big Bang, is cosmology. And so I'm interested on in uh, in dark matter. I'm interested in how how the Big Bang is uh, uh, the source of the lightest elements in the universe. The, the hydrogen uh, that's in your body and the water in your body, the helium uh, that's ubiquitous through the stars, that all came from the Big Bang. And so I'm interested in that as well. I wouldn't call that a short attention span. I would say a diverse attention span, for sure. <laughs> Diversity is power and strength. Tell me about your journey to be toward becoming an astrophysicist. And working in your current field, yeah. So I guess uh, I guess I always liked science in school. 
uh, and was, you know, reasonably okay at it. Um, and then, so I ended up majoring in physics in college, went to Williams College, so go Eves. Um, and, um, uh, and, but I didn't do really any, and I wasn't much of a stargazer and I didn't own a telescope and I couldn't name a constellation. Um, but, uh, but when I was, uh, you know, getting ready to go to the next step, go to graduate school to get a, you know, deeper understanding. Um, I heard a talk about, uh, uh, about cosmology and I didn't realize that you could even do that. Uh, and I was just blown away that, uh, that you could do science on the scale of the whole universe. And I said, I want to do that. Um, and then that's, that's what I ended up doing. And for our listeners, what exactly is cosmology in your words? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so it's a very modest subject. It's just the study of the, uh, of the universe, uh, the origin, evolution, composition, and fate of the universe. So when, once we've got all that figured out, then, you know, we'll be done and we can move on. But, uh, <laughs> but of course, since it's in the entire universe that encompasses everything there is, so that's, uh, that's a big topic. And, uh, uh, so there's lots of job security working on it. So there's a lot we know about, about the universe, but there's a shocking amount we don't know. We don't, we don't know what most of the universe is made of. We know that it's mostly made of dark matter and dark energy, and we don't even know what that is. So, right. uh, so there's job security for cosmology because there's there's so much <laughs> we don't know. There's still so much to learn, that is for sure. What would you describe to be one of the biggest myths, in your opinion, about the cosmos, about our universe? Ah, oh, good question. Um, uh, right. So there are several. These are like exam questions I give. So... Uh, so, but one would be, um, uh, one, it's, it's, it's an understandable misunderstanding, uh, because, uh, 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 because we have kind of a bad name. So, uh, so the idea for the origin of the universe, uh, we usually refer to that as the Big Bang. Um, and, um, and that's okay, but in some ways it's a little misleading because the term kind of, uh, kind of suggests uh that uh something like uh you know a bomb going off that there's some you know uh, some some lump of material that's exploding into empty space um because that's you know most bangs you're aware of uh uh go like that um but that's not how it is with the universe the universe as far as we know is smoothly filled with stuff as far as the eye can see, and there's no edge to it. It doesn't stop. So it's not some compact stuff that then explodes into empty space. Uh, so the Big Bang is actually an expansion of space itself. Well, the, the moment of the Big Bang is when space and time come into existence. And then, uh, uh, and then the rest of the history of the universe to date is the, uh, is the expansion of space and the cooling of the matter, uh, as space expands. Amazing. What and would so be one of the things oh, I have to say? Sorry, one of the and so that means where did the Big Bang happen? It wasn't in some far off place where there was some cra crazy explosion. The Big Bang happened everywhere. Wherever you go, that is where the Big Bang happened. Hmm. And how would you describe that for someone who can't make? I wouldn't say make sense, but someone who can't unpack the abstract nature of space expanding in every point all at the same time. Yeah, and th that that is a hard idea. And so mm -hmm. uh, and when I teach cosmology one of the things I say is if uh uh if this doesn't bother you you haven't thought about it hard enough. It takes a while to get the, the hang of this. Even Einstein, it took, you know, he uh 
his equations showed that the universe would be expanding, and he actually put in a fudge factor to kind of keep it from doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. For even Einstein, that was a pretty crazy idea. But later on, uh, the, an astronomer, Edwin Hubble, he of the name for the Hubble telescope, uh, uh, actually discovered that all the galaxies are moving away from us and indeed the universe is expanding. Um, so, uh, so it's a crazy enough idea that even Einstein, you know, shied away from it at first. So it's okay, you know, first time around, it probably should bother you. Um, but one analogy that helps people sometimes, it's only an analogy, but, uh, again, it's a little closer to home is a raisin cake. Uh, so the idea is you got a bunch of dough with raisins in it. Um, and then, as the cake rises, the raisins are like the galaxies. All the raisins move away from all the other raisins. Uh, and actually, if you lived on one raisin and to observe the others, they would move in just the same way the galaxies move away from us. It's very nice. And so the dough would be like the space that's expanding. The yeast makes the space expand. Um, and uh, and the raisins are like the galaxies. The difference is uh, that a raisin cake you know, has a finite size. And as I was saying, the universe doesn't have a finite size. So it's an infinite raisin cake, which would be tasty, but lots of calories. <laughs> <laughs> and it would take us quite some time to consume and finish. Yes, indeed. <laughs> what can we expect next from you and your body of work? Ah, let's see. So, um, well, like I said, so I, I'm continue to be interested in uh, uh, in explosions near the Earth and uh, and in the Big Bang. And let's see, things we're working on now uh, and in the near future. Um, there's uh, something I'll mention in my talk is um, uh, there have been some really exciting discoveries very recently that uh, um, that something put plutonium on the bottom of the ocean millions of years ago. Um, and that's uh, that plutonium is particularly interesting because it's one of the very heaviest elements. And uh, to this day, we're not really sure where the very heaviest elements are made um, uh, in in the cosmos, and so um, and so by and so by finding it at the bottom of the ocean, we know something nearby made them recently, and um, and only the first hints of the, the 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 data we have so far isn't enough to answer the question. But there's new data coming, which would help us uh, not just see that some some crazy thing happened near the Earth but could even tell us something profound about how the elements are made throughout the universe. So we're looking forward to that. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. What do you think the most important contribution has been to date toward astrophysics and astronomy even? Ah, so that's a big question. Um, so, so that's kind of a big picture question. So I'll give a big picture answer. Um, and that is that, uh, that, astronomy, cosmology, uh, that it's science on the grandest of scales. It sh first of all, it shows us that the scientific principles that we learn uh, in the, you know, by laboratory measurements and clever theories constructed here on Earth, don't just work for the Earth, they work for the entire cosmos, which is an amazing, beautiful result. Um, and, um, and by taking advantage of that, by cleverly working together with theory and observations, um, 
we have a sense of the of of how the earth fits into the grand scheme so we have a sense of the architecture of the cosmos uh starting from the solar system moving out to our galaxy that we live in and then our galaxy is one among many throughout the universe and so having a sense of our place in the cosmos how the cosmos is constructed and what its history over time is so those are you know some big questions that people have thought about as long as there have been people to look up into the sky and now the science gives a way of uh, of understanding answers to some of those questions and it turns out raises other questions that are pretty interesting as well definitely what advice do you have for future or budding astrophysicists professional and amateur alike ah yes so uh um uh stay curious so learn as much as you can so there's some you know there's great stuff on uh there, there are great uh, programs on the internet and on and on tv movies about about science and you can enjoy science fiction some of it doesn't have accurate science but it's okay to enjoy that and let that get you you know excited and uh, stimulate the imagination um and uh um take a lot of math and science we love math and science. I taught math and science at the high school level. Here, so here. That was parallel to some of my advice for my kids. It's just to stay curious and just have a million and six questions always. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to cover that I may not have asked you or we weren't able to get to during this brief podcast? Um I guess just well I wanted to again to just say I'm I'm uh I'm it's an honor to uh to be be part of this lecture series and I guess one thing I would say is that it's my 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 impression is that Maria Mitchell I mean one of the amazing things about her and about the whole institute that you're a part of is that she was uh, dedicated to astronomy but also topics closer to home at earth so ecology biodiversity marine science and i love this holistic view of science that it touches all of this and that's a theme of my research and my talk about the interplay between the cosmic and the terrestrial that we are citizens of the cosmos and the cosmos intervenes in our lives uh in some ways that are so commonplace we don't even Think about them we take them for granted some ways that are so subtle you don't even notice them but once in a while the cosmos intervenes with a vengeance and that will be the topic of my talk amazing well we are most certainly looking forward to hosting you next wednesday evening and i definitely can't wait to learn more about the intersection between the cosmos and the terrestrial lands and i know that our viewers as well as our listeners are definitely elated and excited to learn more from you as well and I can't think of a truer statement than Mariah Mitchell being so interdisciplinary. She was so interwoven and interconnected in the field of science and cross-collaborated with so many people during her time. And just having you and featuring you and your presentation, it aligns so perfectly with our mission and our nature of Nantucket, the fabric of Nantucket. <laughs> so thank you again, Dr. Fields. It's been a pleasure chatting with you for the last few minutes. And we are so excited to host you. And thank you so much for your dedication, your commitment, and your time. Well, thank you. The pleasure is mine. I'll see you next week. See you soon. <laughs>